This is Andy Ricker, and you're listening to the Mike Sappho Podcast. What's going on, bud? Not much. Just doing it. We're finally doing this live. I always thought this was kind of like online dating. We emailed. We texted. You called in a couple of times. I stalked you at the restaurant, and now we're doing this long form, uh, finally live. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> did I live up? Did I live up to your expectations? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've met. You know, two-time James Beard Award-winning champion. Where do you get the? Uh, do you get an actual award, or is it just a little plaque? No, they they give you a medal. Do you wear it when you chef it up? No, no, no. It's it's uh, be it'd be wildly impractical. Really? <laughs> How's uh? First of all, congratulations on the wedding. Thank you very much. How did Andy Rick propose? Um, it was pretty informal. I think we were just sitting in the front yard, and I and I, you know, said, "Hey." Uh, gave her a ring and just said, "Can I wear this?" And I said, "Yeah, if you <laughs> if you agree to put up with me for, <laughs> you know, the rest of your life, that's fine." <laughs> she's absolutely beautiful, man. So congratulations. Yeah, Gung is great. Yeah, she's I, um, fantastic. I was on your Instagram and I saw the wedding ceremony it was in Thailand. I'm assuming what was the white stuff around the wrist? What were those ropes? What does that signify? That's string, and typically it's it's used in a lot of um, Buddhist ceremonies and and typical um, other celebrations that aren't specifically uh, about religion uh, and a lot in the north. Uh, and it's, it just signifies tying uh, tying you together. Also, uh, other people will put the strings on you to wish you good luck. Oh, that was cool. I saw it all the way up your your arm. It yeah, looked pretty so cool. Everybody comes up to the to the little altar where you're sitting, and they they give you a blessing and they tie. And you got married in Chiang Mai, I'm assuming. Yeah, we got married at our house there. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Now, were the cats involved in the wedding? The cats were not actively involved in it, but they certainly were around. They weaseled their way in for sure. So I got married three weeks ago, uh-huh. and I'll show you what we did with my cat Pickles. We put a little tuxedo on him. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> My wife's like, he has to be involved, and obviously, and I told you, I'm not, I wasn't a cat guy until I got pickles. Now he yeah, yeah. runs my life, and I'm like, we need him involved completely. Yeah. One, I'm going to have a, a cat question for you because you're a cat guy. Is your cat obsessed with Q-tips? Um, no, they're obsessed with earplugs, you know, little foam earplugs. Okay, okay. Yeah, they, they, you'll, they'll find them and play with them, and then you'll move a chair, and there'll be like 20 of them. Yeah, there. pickles plays with these Q-tips, but Andy, every night... And now we're pulling up like a little piece of the rug, and there's like 10. He hoards them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, crazy. Yeah, total, yeah. <laughs> well, listen, I got like an advanced copy of your book, Pock Pock Noodles. Yes. Congratulations on it. Thank you very much, yeah. It's the trilogy. It's like The Hunger Games, your third mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. What made you want to do another cookbook? Well, um, after the first book was done, we pitched the uh, publishing company with two more books. So we just got a two-book deal on that. And they were loosely based on the uh, two other concepts of restaurants that I had at the time. One was the Whiskey Soda Lounge. The other was a, a, a restaurant called Senyai. And Whiskey Soda Lounge was the drinking food book that came out last. And then uh, Pock Pock Noodles was going to be Senyai. Uh, that was the original title. But Senyai is no longer a restaurant. Mm-hmm. It, it turns out that um, trying to make noodles and selling them in, in America is not very profitable. <laughs> if, if you're running a sort of a a restaurant the way that I do, which is like try to make things, you know, real like really, really as as good as we can with really well sourced products and attention to detail, good customer service. It's just you know people don't want to spend the kind of money that that they uh, should mm-hmm. on food like that. So it just you know it it ended up being too much work for for the you know how how well it did as a business. I love how you circle around the words. I know you hate the word traditional. I know yeah. you hate the tr- traditional Thai food, but that's what it is. Like you're going in, 
and it's a little more expensive because you're getting real ingredients. You're not half-assing it with any of your stuff. That's the big reason, right? Mm, yeah, mostly. And, and, you know, we also, uh, you know, we make everything, you know, make our own soup stocks. We process our own uh, proteins. You know, it's just, it's very, very labor-intensive, and um, it just takes a lot of, uh, takes a lot of labor, and labor's not cheap, and, and noodles are. Well, I've ate at Pock Pock in Brooklyn at least maybe eight to ten times, and like you said, the customer service, and that goes up from you all the way down. Everyone's spot on, a ten, overly nice, describes the food. It's some of the best customer service I've ever seen anywhere. That's that's really good to hear. <laughs> that's really nice to hear. Thanks. You mentioned la like labor. How much work goes into a cookbook? Because it seems a lot. A lot. And it's, you know, your average cookbook takes about two years' time from let's get going until it arrives at the uh, at the uh, at the customer's house and I, that's you know that's about a year and a half of work and then six months of waiting and then you start ramping up and doing the, the uh, promo work around it right before it, it gets uh, delivered this is gonna sound silly but a lot of these recipes first of all you told a story for each one it wasn't just like hey here's how you cook cow soy you told a whole story with it number one which I love because it kind of personalizes the book mm. it's not you just grabbing recipes and two, do you go up to these little tide ladies on the street and ask for help, ingredients? Because I know you tweak them a little bit, but are you going what their recipes are and they're open to that? Well, I mean, a lot a lot of this comes from the fact that I've been, you know, living and traveling and studying the food in Thailand since 1986. Uh, so, you know, it's a lot of years of just being there, mm -hmm. right, and tasting and eating and, and observing and some of the recipes come directly from people who I say, hey, how do you make that? And other ones are just like me eating it, tasting it, and, you know, uh, understanding about, you know, I, I don't often just straight up ask people for the recipe. You know, it's, for one thing, it's not really, uh, it's not something that's really done uh, in, most, in most cases. Mm -hmm. You don't really just ask somebody for the recipe. Um, and for another thing, it's, it's uh, you know, some of these folks are, you know, th this is stuff that they've been making for two generations, and they've got secrets. They're not, like, and it's, it makes them unique, and I, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to ask that kind of thing, you know? You don't want to infringe uh, on them and be like, hey, yeah, do this. Yeah, it's, you know, it's not on. They're, they're like, they have competition, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they, and they don't want, they're not going to give up their secrets, and, and they shouldn't. So, but the thing is that, like, you know, I've been, I've been there for long enough that I can taste what's going on, and I can pretty much tell and sometimes I, I can't, but most of the time I can, I can go, oh, yeah, I understand what's going on here. And, you know, it's not rocket science. You know, you, you have a bowl of chicken noodles on the, on the cover there, and it's, it's broth, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I know how to make chicken broth. <laughs> Pretty good one. Um, and it's noodles. So, you, you know, which noodle is the best one? It's up to you. Uh, I know there's bean sprouts in it. I know there's chicken meat in it. I know there's herbs. I know that it's cilantro, green onions, and uh, sometimes um, culantro. I know that there's garlic oil on it. And, you know, after that, it's kind of up to you. Like, you know, there's fish sauce in it for sure. Mm -hmm. But maybe they'll throw a little spoonful of MSG or a little bit of sugar or a few shakes of pepper. Or maybe they got something else going on. And it's like, you know, but it's not that hard to triangulate in on what's in the bowl. And then you set about trying to s figure out, you know, how much of each thing should go in there for it to taste right. And that comes from experience. That just comes from knowing the product. You don't seem like kind of like a guy who's out there in the, in the public eye. You don't love it, even though you are everywhere. You were on Bourdain a bunch of times. You're on a bunch of shows. Your name's heavy in the business. Are you doing a lot of press for this book? Because I looked it up, and it was Austin, Toronto. 
San Francisco, Seattle, New York. That doesn't seem like you, but you're doing a lot of press for this, right? Yeah, I'm actually doing more than I did for the last book, and it's uh, it's as you said before, this is the, this is kind of like the culmination of you know a, a trilogy of books, and I don't plan on doing another book for a long time, mm-hmm. and I feel like this particular book, the subject matter is pretty populist, and, mm-hmm. and uh, I want to get it in front of as many people as I can, and then I'm gonna be see you later. <laughs> uh, You're gonna decompress for a little bit. No, I mean, uh, there's there's no decompression. Uh, the the book it, like the book's been done for six months. Okay, uh, you know, there's other things in life that are you know, uh, got six restaurants in Portland to run and and a licensing deal in Las Vegas to do and you know, uh, other projects. I've got a beverage company, Some Cordials, that you know is taking a lot of time. So there's no there's no decompressing, <laughs> but there hopefully what'll you know what'll happen is that not working on a book would give me more time to focus on the other parts of work and then also try to be in Thailand a little bit more. Who did the pitches for the book? Was it our buddy Austin Bush? Yeah, it was Austin Bush, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I loved, I'll tell you, and you, you'll describe it better, I love that it wasn't like the Instagram, like, let's get the perfect angle with the sunset. It was like raw Thailand. It was the plastic seats. It was the, you know, the lady cooking it. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, the garlic on the table. It was like really genuine, real, and raw. Was that like obviously your purpose? Yeah, so the last book was even more so that way, mm-hmm. the, the drinking food book. We went out and we shot that primarily at night with a hard um, hard uh, flash and really gritty. And, and the food that's in that book, we pretty much, none of it was beauty shots. It was all food that we shot at the location that was being made. Then I recreated the recipe later. This book, if you look at some of the, the, the what we call the beauty shots, mm-hmm. like that was shot in you know, a makeshift studio in the basement of my house using mostly natural light. Oh, really? A um, little, little bit of, you know, makeup light here when the, there when he needed it. Um, but, you know, it, it follows the theme that, that we've, we've pretty much followed. It, it, look, it hark, harks back to the first book. But the, 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 um, the atmosphere shots, as they call shots like mm-hmm. this, were just shot on the streets and, you know, little shops and stuff in, th- in Thailand. How does one, I guess, because I have a ton of authors on the show, how do you rate if a book's successful? Because it's different with a cookbook, especially a Thai cookbook. How do you rate maybe the success of it? Because it's like, you know, when I have on Eric Larson, he comes on, he's like, I judge it if I'm a top five, top ten author on the rankings. How do you judge something like this of a success? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on how you look at success. If you you manage to get it published <laughs> <laughs> and you, you're not out of pocket, that's pretty good. Okay. Um, you The way the book deals work is you get an advance, right? Mm-hmm. And out of that, the author has to come up with the budget for the photography, the recipe testing, uh, co-writer if you have one, your agent, um, and uh, you know any other kind of incidentals if you want to have like illustrations or stuff like that. And um, you know if you're lucky, you have a big enough advance that you can cover all that before the book is done. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not lucky, you and you wanted and you're a little bit more ambitious than the budget, then you have to reach into your pocket. Oh. Well, the problem with that mm-hmm. is that the you know, the next step to, to judge whether you're successful or not is, you know, it's nice to see your nice to see your book ranking, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't mean a goddamn thing if you're if you're if you're not selling enough yeah, of them to earn out. So the next thing, you know, the next the next thing is, did, does the book earn out? Meaning, do you pay back your advance? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you pay back your advance by selling the book, that means that that the book has done really well. Cookbooks don't typically earn out. Uh, Popular ones, you know, they, they've got to sell a lot to earn out. 
Um, so if you get one that earns out, you've do, you've done well. I would say that's that's the, that's the landmark. Okay. You, you know, you you you're you didn't you're not out of pocket. You pay back your, <laughs> you know, you earn out, and maybe you start getting some royalty checks. That's kind that's of that's the goal. That's the goal. Yeah. Andy Ricker flies back into New York. First meal is it a bagel? What's your first meal back in New York? What do you crave the most? Well, it depends on what time of day I come back. <laughs> you come back at eight a.m. You land 8 at JFK eight a.m. All right. By the time I get to my apartment in Sunset Park, it's mid morning, so I go and have a coffee mm-hmm. first thing because okay. I got it. Um, and then you know the first real meal I probably would have would be to go to uh, Pai Feng Fu Noodle Dumpling House and have some beef noodles and a, a sesame pan bread. I would judge your Thai thing because you know the white people love your food and stuff. Does your wife and her family do they approve of your uh, cooking? Um, my wife certainly does. Uh, I I cook a lot at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, the parents, I think, they're a little bemused by the whole thing. <laughs> um, but uh, you know that they 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 politely eat what I what I cook. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Ju- Julia, my she's Filipino, so she makes all Filipino dishes. But we made two things actually from your cookbook. I wrote it down too. We made the tom yum soup, which is uh-huh. it was pretty easy to make. We made yeah. it together, and then I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but it was the stir fry glass noodles with soy sauce, pork, and Chinese broccoli. Was it the Si Si Wunsen? Pad Wunsen. Yes, 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 yes. We actually it came out great, and oh, good. she got the ingredients because we got the book like two months ago. Mm-hmm. And she's like, we have to try to make some of the stuff. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, it bothered me. I'm like, it's a little intimidating, but then she's like. It's a flat-out cookbook with some words we didn't know before. That was it. Mm-hmm. Do you get that a lot, like people who try this stuff? I, I think that um, typically a question I get often is, well, hey, if we want to make this but we don't want to go through all the hassle, you know, what are some shortcuts we can do? And, and my answer is go buy another cookbook. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, there, there's dozens of books out there that, that are like 101 easy recipes, and subst- here's all the substitutions. And I, I really firmly believe that if you want to get a remarkable result, you have to go through some hassle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it depends on where you live. If you live in New York uh, and you live anywhere near an Asian market, it's not that big of a hassle, really. Uh, it's just a matter of, of gathering your, your ingredients together. Um, it doesn't require any remarkably uh, complex or expensive equipment to mm-hmm. do. Um, but it does take some time to think about the recipe, try to understand it, and then execute it just how it says. Um, and I think that, that it's if you read the recipes that, that I write, they tend to be relatively dense and pretty precise. Mm-hmm. But that's because uh, you know I really want people to be able to come out with something that tastes really good, or not only tastes good, but like tastes the way that I've tasted it before. And I, I really believe that if you follow these recipes really and really read them, really follow them, you'll end up with something that you wouldn't end up if you didn't go through this process. So, you know, that's that's why that's why I write recipes the way I do. I love in the book when it's like, <laughs> if you want to make four cups of soup, whatever, four ingredients, but make one bowl at a time. Like you want everything just to be, make it good. Yeah. If you're going to rush, save it for another night then. Don't rush this meal. Right. Take your time, make yeah. it special, make it a nice a little occasion with it. So that that's a question that pops up a lot too about this particular book. It's like why are the recipes set up to make it one plate or bowl mm-hmm. at a time? And the answer is that this typically is the way that these dishes are made. And and if you go to a noodle vendor, they they don't give you a pot of stuff and put it on the table and then you kind of help yourself. It's you know, you get a bowl. 
and then the person next to you gets their bowl, mm -hmm. the person across from you gets their bowl, and they're all different. And so to assemble this and make it work, uh, it's not a whole lot different than ramen, right? You, you, you assemble the bowl, mm -hmm. you hand it to somebody, and they eat it, right? So instead of making it, you know, uh, recipes, so here, this serves four. We said, here's the mise en place you need. And if you want to make for eight people, you multiply by eight. Um, some of the pantry items are uh, stuff that you make in bulk and, and throw in the freezer. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense to make 16 ounces of pork stock, right? It's, just <laughs> it's ridiculous. So you make a big pot of pork stock, mm -hmm. and you, you use what you're going to use tonight, and then you freeze the rest of it. And then when you want to make noodles later on, you just pull it out of the freezer, you heat it back up, and, and blammo, you can make the noodles. So there's a lot of that kind of thing in there where it's like certain mise en place you can make uh, large quantities in advance, keep it in the fridge or in the freezer, pull it out, and then you can assemble quickly. Uh, so that's that's why it was written that way. What other press are you doing in New York? You just, you just came from somewhere, didn't you? just come from, where did you come from, Momofuku? Um, so yeah, today I had meetings, at, at, um, but I, we're doing a lunch event at Momofuku Noodle Bar okay. uh, tomorrow uh, at noon, and they're going to run uh, the Mama Ramen, Mama Nam from, from the book, mm -hmm. uh, their version of it. And... Um, uh, that's going to be a lunchtime event, and then I'll be doing a uh, I'll be doing a, a book event at Archistratus Books on Huron Street, one sixty Huron Street. Yeah, yeah. I work like two blocks from that, so yeah, I work two blocks from that, so I. All right, cool, cool. Yeah, so they're gonna do they're gonna do a thing at their store on Tuesday, Wednesday mm -hmm. evening. Um, also doing taping a thing with uh, Vice. Oh, are you really? What are you doing with Vice? They do the best. Just doing a, uh, a demonstration of one of the, the noodles for, for some uh, video. Um, and then I'm going to D.C. on the 23rd, and that's for a, uh, a dinner and chat at the uh, National Press Club. What Are you doing something in Austin? I read somewhere when I – are you doing like a pop-up? Are you doing like barbecue, yes. noodles? I'm like, this isn't Andy or – I feel like yeah. I know you. I'm like, that's not Andy. What are you doing there? So there's this great – food festival there mm. called Hot Luck, and it's run by Aaron Franklin from Franklin Barbecue. Mm -hmm. You know, probably some of the people listening will recognize yeah. his name. That's a fr isn't that the Franklin Barbecue? Uh, there's a cookbook. Yes. Yes, okay, yeah. of course. And Aaron's an incredible guy. He's just like one of the, the most focused and talented individuals I've ever met. He's just like one restaurant, one thing. Mm -hmm. da, 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 da. Um, and uh, we're friends. We've known each other for a number of years. And he's doing a festival in tandem with some other folks from Portland. Uh, they do the Feast Festival in Portland. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's called Hot Luck. And it's a combination of uh, food events and bands playing. Because uh, Austin's a of course. You know, great music city. Um, so what we're doing is uh, we're doing a Pac Pac takeover of Franklin Barbecue uh, on the, the last night of the event, kind of like as a kind of added on a little bit late in the in the uh, in the agenda um, but uh, it's gonna be really fun because we're gonna we're not just gonna give people a bowl of noodles it's mm -hmm. like come in you're gonna get some Franklin barbecue stuff so we'll, we'll do stuff like Franklin barbecue uh, brisket with some pock pock dipping sauce and we'll do the pock pock chicken wings with Franklin barbecue pickles and I'll do a noodle dish and you're gonna mash it up yeah, so it, it'll be fun. You go through and you get a big tray and you get all these different things. I'll be there with the books and uh, just a fun, a fun thing to do because I really dig what they do mm -hmm. and uh, 
I guess I guess he digs what I do too. <laughs> Someone at work told me today that Pock Pock actually means something. Mm-hmm. I, I never knew. I've known yeah. you for five years now. I didn't know that. Well, it it doesn't really mean something. It it uh, it's come to mean something, but it's an onomatopoeia, right? It's the sound of the pestle hitting the mortar. So it doesn't literally have a meaning. But Pock 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 is a noise. There's like a reason for the name. I never yeah, knew yeah. that. I was I'm like, yeah. oh, he's there. I, I never knew that. Mm-hmm. I'm going back to Thailand a week from tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to Bhutan and Laos. I'm doing that. I'm going to Bangkok for two days. Mm-hmm. You've been there a gazillion times. Mm-hmm. What's changed the most in the last thirty years? The best part and the worst part in thirty years. Uh, you mean all over or just anything specifically? Just any anything in Bangkok that's okay. changed. Because you were there in the late yeah. '80s. Well, it's it's a lot more developed, and uh, the, some good things that have happened is that the. Uh, the economy's gotten a lot better, for one, so people make a lot more money. There's a lot more opportunity. Um, other good things is that public transportation has gotten really good. They've got a uh, subway system, and they've got a SkyTrain. Uh, so that's a lot better than it was back mm-hmm. in the 80s. Uh, traffic is still still terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, quality of life has gotten a lot better, I think, for, for Bangkokians. Uh, because of tourism, is that? Uh, they've <laughs> just, you know, they've been, you know, the Asian tiger. They've just kind of like their economy's gone up, mm-hmm. shot up, you know, from uh, finance, you know, all kinds of stuff, manufacturing, financial services, like all that kind of stuff. Um, tourism for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, <coughs> I think the, I think also another good thing is for me anyway is that Bangkok has really become a very kind of. Uh, What's the word? Cosmopolitan city. You, when you used to go there before, it was, it was pretty. I don't know if xenophobic is the right word, but it wasn't. It was. It was really super Thai, and that was. And that's cool, but it didn't have the feeling when you when you go to like Singapore or you go to Hong Kong or you go to Manila or something like that, where there's lots of different folks from mm-hmm. all over the world kind of <coughs> exchanging ideas. And and Bangkok has really become that lately. It's in the last, I'd say, five to ten years. It's become very cosmopolitan, and uh, it you know art scene is flourishing. The restaurant world is is booming. Um, you know, it's it's I think it's a lot more interesting uh, for y- you know a modern person of the world. Uh, that's not to say that Bangkok wasn't interesting before. Mm-hmm. It certainly was. I bet so. I bet it was. But the good news is you can still mm-hmm. find you know old Bangkok mm-hmm. still around. You just got to dig around a bit. So uh, yeah. A question I had, I don't know if I read it in an article, if I watched an interview with you, maybe, I, I'm trying to remember now. Are they trying to limit or get rid of a lot of the food stalls yeah. on the street? Now, I, th- I I hope it was from you. Are they trying to make it like Singapore, the hawker stations, putting everyone in a central location, or are they just... Uh, th- I don't think they've thought that far ahead, uh, or they might have done, but they haven't acted on it per se. I, there are certainly folks in the establishment there that wish that it was like Singapore, mm-hmm. where the streets were nice and clean and there were hawker centers. Um, but it's not really in the Thai people's nature to, to be like that. It's it's a much more um, it's a, n- a much more opportunistic and open society than Singapore's. And so what's happened is that they've, you know, it, it was it, w- it was kind of funny. They they got voted the the, the greatest street food country in the world. <laughs> Bangkok got named best street food city in the entire world and like they announced, literally announced, like <laughs> either right before or right after that, that they were cleaning up the streets, and there was this big scramble, like this. <coughs> oh no, 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 no! We didn't, you know, that's not what we meant. And blah, 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 blah. 
but sure sure enough they they went ahead and did it like they've they've cleared out um, a few major thoroughfares of their street food now I will say this that um, those certain parts of those neighborhoods probably needed cleaning up because okay. the, the, the sidewalks were completely clogged with vendors you know n- typically not selling the most wonderful food in the whole world or you know it, you walk up Sukhumvit and there'd be like you know 150 stalls selling porno <laughs> DVDs and like some dudes selling fried fried uh, you know pork paste um, it's not to say that 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 some really great vendors were pushed out mm-hmm. and basically they were told look get off the main street you have to go into an alley or onto the private property it's made the big problem really is that the people who do that that was how they made a living yeah it wasn't just uh, you know convenience thing it was this this was people's livelihood and so you know it was really it's really tough for some of these folks and they've had to like you know either leave the neighborhoods they've been vending in for years so there's a lot of stuff that, that, that was it was good that it's gone, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of stuff that also is not good that it's gone. Yeah, people paid the price. Yeah. I was surprised reading your book that because I actually read it, it said that uh, a lot of those carts are franchised. That shocked me. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's the it's 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 interesting if you uh, after a while you train your eyes and you start seeing the same kind of cart with the same sign over mm-hmm. and over again, and and there's this kind of romantic idea that we want to have in the West that every meal we have on the street is is like oh my God, it was run by this grandma and <laughs> grandpa or auntie and uncle and it was the best whatever it is that I've ever had. It was amazing. And, you know, and that's great. That People should have that experience. Uh-huh. And I kind of feel bad for saying, well, you know, that's that's uh, it's like it's a, a franchise that you can buy and, <laughs> and like um, typically, you know, the, the food is heavily processed and you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, I don't know. It's it's just one of those little secrets that, that's probably, you know, best not to tell people. But also, you know, it, it's it's a bit ridiculous for people to walk around saying, well, I had the most <laughs> authentic, <laughs> traditional, amazing thing uh, at this one spot. And you and you look at it and you go, yeah, that's there's about 20,000 of those throughout the <laughs> kingdom. And they all buy processed meat from CP, which is like, one of the biggest mm-hmm. it's like uh, I don't know one name name a giant food conglomerate that, that, that and that's CP chicken. from Bangkok CP, CP is is like that so it's like ultra processed food that's really fatty and full of sugar and, and lots and lots of additives and stuff like that and you know that's just it's not it's not the greatest food in the world mm-hmm. I mean, it tastes good it's yeah. got a lot of flavor but it's you know, it's not the greatest food in the world don't worry the people can instagram it and say that they're in thailand let everybody know yeah it's just i only eat street food man that's what they yeah. say but but the thing is it's not they're not not everyone is like that mm-hmm. right there's certain there's certain franchises that you see again and again and again but people still there's people that have been running food stalls on the streets or at markets for you know a couple generations and and you know they've their food is just as good as anything you'd find inside a restaurant. So I know you traveled all over Southeast Asia, and I hate that you're Andy Ricker, the Thai guy. It's like you kind of stereotyped as that. Any other food kind of maybe you almost gravitated to and you went all in? Because you go all in with everything you do. Was there any other food that you almost went all in with everything? Yeah, I mean, a long time ago, before I opened Pok Pok, I was, I was really kind of obsessed with Yucatecan food. You know, the food, the Mexican food from Yucatan. Okay. I was spending a bunch of time there, and I was really interested in it. I wanted to cook it. 
Um, but it did never quite eclipsed the Thai food thing. Um, I mean, this other, when I'm in the States, I probably eat Vietnamese food more than anything else. Okay. Uh, I love, I love Vietnamese food of all types. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested in cooking that too, though I haven't spent as much time doing it. Uh, but yeah, no, nothing, I don't think anything's grabbed me the, wa- the way that Thai food really has. Yeah. We're not going to tell the mushroom story, how you came obsessed with yeah. that one mushroom thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be in Bangkok two days and then we're off all over there. You ever go to Bhutan before or no? Haven't been to Bhutan. Definitely want to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pain in the ass, by the way, to get there. You have to get yeah. a tour. It, it's a headache. We're, I'm actually yeah. leaving. Two places in Bangkok I need to eat at. I'm going to write it down. All two right. places. I'm going there. Okay. So I'll give it's you. It's like my. Sixth or seventh time there, but I want two places Andy Rick is going to recommend. Okay, so I'm going to give you two two places. One place, there's something very interesting happening in, in Thailand right now. There's a lot of younger chefs who have maybe gone and worked at international restaurants, maybe out of the country. They've learned modern techniques, and then they've turned their focus back to the food of Thailand and the traditions and the, and mm-hmm. the history and the ingredients and stuff like that, and kind of are approaching it the way that Maybe, um, you know, uh, somebody like, maybe not quite as high-minded as Noma, though some people are starting to approach that. Wow. Um, wow. But they're really, they're really thinking about local, locally sourced ingredients that are indigenous and using techniques that are, that are very Thai. Um, and there's a bunch of these guys doing really, really, in, and, and women too, doing very, very interesting stuff. So um, uh, I think probably the place that I like the best, and it's ca- it's a, it's a good place to go because there's some familiarity around it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a place called 100 Mahaset Mingloi Mahaset, M A H A S E T H, and that's an address mm-hmm. uh, in, in Chinatown. Um, chef there, his name is Chali Cater, uh, and he is uh, I believe he's part Thai and part Indian. Um, and he's doing Isan food, but doing it from kind of like a very interesting standpoint. He's using some modern techniques mixed with older techniques. He's, d- he's got an aging program, he's, uh, but he's doing some fermentation stuff that, that's traditional. Uh, and he's just sourcing really, really high-quality ingredients. So it's Isan food, but it's done with this higher-minded mission. Okay. And he takes some liberties, um, but, but educated liberties. And the food's really great. So for the new wave... 100 Mahaset. Okay. There's a bunch of other ones that you'll find out when you start looking into it. Um, I think right now most people are saying, go to J-Fi, go to J-Fi because... Oh, that's the one... Uh, yeah, she just won a, a Michelin star. Yes, I saw that. I actually saw her on Netflix, um, yeah. Street, Street Food. food. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, you know, I was that guy I emailed because mm-hmm. I'm going there alone for a few days. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, we have room for one. But then I had my wife email for two just in case my friend's going to come along. And like, we're booked up till July. Yeah. Like three hour wait. Yeah. No, it's crazy. Um, so, you know, I- if you've only got two days in Bangkok and you, you're not able to reserve, I- I'd say, you know, forget it. Mm-hmm. Do it another is time. Y- have you eaten there? It's worth it? Oh, yeah. I've eaten there many times. That crab thing is worth it? Yeah. Th- it, I don't think that's her best dish, to be honest. Really? It's one she's most famous mm-hmm. for, but I don't necessarily think it's the best one. Because um, I was actually going to go there and be like, yeah. you know what? I'll wait there. I'll wait the hour wait. I'll get there an hour I early because I've been there so many times. If you want to, then yeah. then, then you should. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that some of her other dishes are a little more compelling than that one. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that one's bad. It's just I, I find her other uh, kind of Thai Chinese classics to be a, 
and the way she makes them is really unique. Like nobody makes them quite like she does. So even stuff like uh, Padki Mao, mm-hmm. it's uh, her mm-hmm. version of Padki Mao is just really like wow. Not a hundred percent sure what's going on here, but it's and it's delicious and it's it, it's different from what other people make. I'm gonna try those two places then. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, try that. How's Pakbak in Wings in Vegas doing? Um, I know awesome. you kind of outsourced it, right? Like it's not. It's a licensing deal. Okay. So essentially, what wh- what you do in, in I mean, there's lots of different ways to to do a deal like that. But the way we did it was that we supplied them with the recipes and the training, and the uh, sort of like the branding and stuff like that. And uh, they they do a little profit sharing thing with us, but they manage it. Mm-hmm. So and it's doing well, like. It's doing well enough, yeah. Any yeah. other places want are interested in that or no? Are you interested in doing that to other places? Um, yeah, I don't know. It it has to be the right situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, a good operator, and uh, you know, potentially we could do it. And now, what, you don't have anything to do with. I know you license it. Do they call you up with any kind of suggestions well, we, or we anything? We go there. You know, we do have something to do with it. We go there. Either me or, or one of my guys will okay. go there, or gals will go there. You know, once a month and just kind of make sure everything's going well. And um, and that's typically, uh, you know, that's what we're contractually required to do. But then we also communicate about supply and whatever else needs to happen. And I want it to be a success. Yeah, well, I went on Yelp and the reviews are through the roof. Oh, good. Do you good. care about the Yelp reviews? Honestly, I stopped reading Yelp reviews you want more water? years and years ago. Um, I think it, I think Pac-Pac in Portland has like five thousand. Yelp reviews. Do the foodies hurt it a little bit by saying like stuff that like they have no idea what they're really talking about? I don't know if you, you know Carl Ruiz, the, the Cuban, the chef. I'm not sure. No. He's Guy Fieri's like best friend. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, he does a show up here with us all the time with Opie, and uh, he's like, dude, I stopped reading Yelp reviews because these people have never been in a the kitchen. They're looking at a picture and they're just using words that they heard on the Food Network or these other things. Mm. So a lot of the Yelp reviews are ridiculous. You don't even. Yeah, I, d- I don't know if I see it exactly the same way. Okay. I do think that um, there's a little bit of a lack of critical thinking that happens in some cases. Mm-hmm. And the the um, whatever algorithm that they use is Fakakta. Like it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like it, you can get, you can look in your in your trash bin or whatever they call it there. You can have like 25-star reviews that didn't make it onto your site. And it's it's like, why aren't those on mm-hmm. there? And, and these other crappy ones are. And it's, you know, it... Uh, I don't know. It's. I feel like it's good that people have a voice, that mm-hmm. people are able to express their opinion about somebody, and, and, and people uh, can listen to them and say, yeah, I, I, I'm buying into this. And that's fine. It's like it's, it's not – but I'm not going to run my business based on what somebody yelps, right? I, I, but what I will do is if we start seeing a drumbeat, if we see like over a period of a month there's like 20 posts – from people from all over the place with no connection, and, and they all mentioned somewhere as well, the host was rude. Then we'll, we'll go, hmm, let's mm. check and see what's going mm. on. Because we know we have a policy that says that hosts aren't rude. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we have a, very, we have a you know, s- you know, training program, and we know that you know, if everything's going right, the host is friendly. You know? So why is it that, that people are feeling like the host is rude? And sometimes it's not that the host is rude. It's sometimes that the host is telling people no to something they want to be told yes to. It's a 40-minute wait. Worst hostess ever, right? Yeah, and, and, <laughs> you're, and you're like, okay, so that's what's going on. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it's like a, a message didn't get given to the people who are working at the, at the front door or something else has happened and, and we that we didn't foresee. So we'll, we'll go back and go, okay, what, what can we do to make it so that people don't feel this way? 
Um, and if we if we hear over and over and over again that the that the uh, the, the uh, chicken wings are too fishy tasting, we don't do a damn thing. We're <laughs> supposed to. <Yeah. laughs> all right, we're gonna have a few more minutes with you. Plug the book where they can get it, how they can follow you, sure. do all the social media. Do your little plug right now. Sure. So the book comes out tomorrow. That's May twenty first, and uh, it's available at all online uh, book suppliers. But and and a good good amount of uh, national chains, bookstores, independent booksellers. You can also get it on our website, uh, which is, of course, the way that I would prefer you got it. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Well, because we get more money. <laughs> we, uh, we get a better deal if, if you buy it off, off of our website. Um, I don't know. Actually, I don't, I don't care. So however you get it is great. And uh, you know, I'll be on tour for the next few weeks. We're going to uh, Washington, D.C., New York, Washington, D.C., Austin, uh, L.A., San Francisco, Seattle, Toronto, and then I'll do I'll do a couple of international dates later this year. I'm going to go to London and, and Copenhagen at some point. Oh, you really? Yeah. Um, and you know, I I, uh, I you can get it you can get it as a Kindle book as well if you don't like buying you know the the, the paper the paper copy. It looks good on Kindle because you can get the preview of it and the you know it's high definition yeah. pictures on Kindle. Do, do people really uh, do recipes off of off of a Kindle? I don't know. I don't know. I know your buddy Austin Bush's book just came on yeah. Kindle. And, and it, it blew up, yeah. Yeah, the pictures look great, too, because you yeah. zoom in on them. It looks mm -hmm. really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, we're going to have a little bit of fun. Finish up, okay? All right. First meal you cooked your wife that you, you tried to impress her with? The first meal that I, I – it was probably it was probably the same thing I still cook <laughs> all the time. <laughs> it was probably just like some stir-fried vegetables with pork, pork belly or something, yeah. I asked you this last time, and now your name's a little more heavier – Coolest person on your phone that if you texted them right now, they would write back. Uh, the coolest. I know you got a lot of people, Mandy. Well, I mean, I, I you know, is cool. You want cool or you want famous? Famous. Oh. Um, yeah, I feel the same. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm not a name dropper. I'll just tell you the person I think is the coolest. Okay. Uh, that probably my buddy Willie Vlotten. Uh, and if you like, you like talking to authors, you should talk to Willie Vlotten sometime. Okay. So he's hook me up on him. Willie is uh, he's the author of a bunch of books. Um, there's one called The Free that came out recently. Mm -hmm. um, Lean on Pete. He's had two or three of his movies turned into, in, or his uh, books turned into movies. So the latest one was Lean on Pete. Okay. That's Steve Buscemi in the movie and stuff like that. Oh, wow. Uh, he's also the leader of a band called Richmond Fontaine. They're like an Americana thing. Mm -hmm. But he also has a band called The D-Lines, and they're out on tour in Europe right now. Um, and Willie's just like, he's always been kind of like a, a, a sort of like a, a moral north for me like the guy the guy like really he always gives me good advice and uh you know very like very folksy but very smart advice and i think he's probably like the coolest guy on my phone that if if you know if he got my text he'd text me back yeah i know you downplay it all the time but you are kind of the you kind of put thai food and not the pad thai kind of on the forefront of you know of america you really have do you feel that, and are you happy with that, that there's so many other restaurants popping up that didn't serve any of the food until kind of recently? Well, I don't, know, I don't know if I was the one who did that. I think the Internet did that. Okay. Uh, I think that um, I, I, would, I would like to think that Pock Pock has had some sort of, uh, been, been part of the conversation in some sort of way. But, um, you know, I, I, and I, you know when it, the world's a far different place than it was 15 years ago when we first started doing it. And I didn't have any grand schemes of kind of, of like, you know, let's 
take over the world or anything like that. But I did feel like um, Thai cuisine was underrepresented here. Mm -hmm. Not that it wasn't present, but that it, that the breadth of it wasn't well represented, and it's gotten more and more well represented over the time. And if Pak Bok had something to do with that, that's great. Uh, but I suspect it just has more to do with with uh, you know the the Thai restaurant owners becoming more um, more focused uh, and more uh, kind of open to to selling food here that that's that's um, closer to what maybe their mom or dad would would eat in in Thailand, um, and you know also a growing and diversifying country. You know, we've got we've got way more people from way way more different places, and I think that the food world has expanded significantly. W you know, with the the rise of food entertainment, uh, access to to you know other cultures, food on the internet, uh, and just generally, you know, more people. You know, y in New York, it's amazing. You get on the subway, and there's every you know every person from every walk of life. I take it every day and yeah, it amazes me amazing. every day. So it's like you like these days you get kids growing up uh, and they're going to school and there'll be a dude from Eritrea and there there'll be a woman from Laos and you know twins from Korea or something like that. And you know these guys they're not they're not like necessarily going let's go down to the burger joint. It, mm -hmm. it might be hey let's go to this new Korean dessert place mm -hmm. or this Taiwanese soup noodle place or this Hong Kong style cafe or this Thai place that does whatever. So, you know, I think people are just more open to it these days. You still have the coolest episode ever on Bourdain's show. <laughs> How many times is that brought up to you all, all the time, right? Yeah, whenever I'm talking to somebody like you, yeah. yeah. I really <laughs> and other people, yeah. Yeah, it, it seems like it was, and I think you said it best last time we podcasted, like it was one of the last ones that was just, hey, it's Bourdain eating brain, you had him eating blood soup, and then partying. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, that was the old Bourdain that we remembered. Before he became such a big voice, and that's why your episode always stands out hmm. to everybody. It's it's still my favorite one. I think it was it was you know he he had to his credit he had really kind of started focusing using it wasn't about food necessarily mm -hmm. it was about other things that were going on. Food was always involved because that was that's how he spoke, um, and. You know, he did some very serious episodes and stuff in Beirut and yeah, he did you know, some heavy shows. Africa and all you know, it was it was it was pretty intense. And this was just kind of a lighthearted uh, sort of diversion from that. And I think it connected with people who who wanted to see that. So it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, absolute pleasure. I didn't know if you were going to do. I thought maybe my girlfriend and I hanging out by the kitchen for twenty minutes, waiting for you to come out to get a picture. It was going to scare you off, but you came. Your book is awesome. Pock Pock noodles, recipes from Thailand and beyond. Andy Ricker, absolute pleasure, my friend. Thank you very much. Thank you, brother.